Thank you, Dean, and thank you for your gifts. Now will you take a copy of God's Word and join Terry and me in opening to Romans chapter 5 as we continue a series, New Life in Christ, based on Romans 5 through 8. Our text, verse 12 and following, begins with the word, therefore, connecting what we're going to read now to what preceded Uh, which we looked at over the last three weeks. Therefore, uh, looks back to all that God has done for us in Christ to justify us, to give us peace with God, to give us hope even in the midst of trouble. And now, listen as the Apostle Paul continues on our new life in Christ. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. And I'm going to interrupt right there. Because you'll notice there's a dash at the end of that partial sentence. The Apostle Paul's thought breaks off, and he continues, though he will get back to the main idea. To be sure, he says, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged to anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all men, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, Grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also Christ might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do uh, Les Miserables, The Lord of the Rings, and Grapes of Wrath have in common? don't say anything. In a small church I pastored before coming to Zion, there was a man who answered my rhetorical questions. Um, And that's a rhetorical question. If you are a literary type, and if I gave you enough time to think about it, you might come up with the answer, but I'm just going to give it to you. Uh, All three of these novels set a small story in the context of a big story. An individual story set against the background of a bigger, even cosmic story. 
So Les Mis tells the story of Jean Valjean set against the story of the French Revolution. The Lord of the Rings tells the story of Frodo and his quest against the background of the war for Middle Earth, a much bigger story than this little hobbit from the Shire. And the Grapes of Wrath tells the story of Tom Joad and his family set against the background of the great American Dust Bowl era. A common pattern in literature and we could come up with other titles. To the list, add Romans. In this, the fullest and most important work that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, we read your story and mine set against a big story of what God is doing in this wide world. Our individual story, how God is making men and women and boys and girls right with himself and offering them a, a home in heaven, set against a big story of what God is doing to set the whole world, in fact, the whole cosmos, right with himself. And how this affects Jews and Gentiles and, and the non-human creation, our little story set against the background of a big story. And so far in Romans 5 and our study over the past few weeks, we have looked at our individual story of new life in Christ. How God is taking unworthy you and me and making them, making us right with himself. But in today's text, the apostle kind of takes a step back to look at the bigger picture of the story that you and I find ourselves in. Here, he says, is the story that we find ourselves in. And I'm going to treat the text today more as a storyteller than as a commentator. This is a dense text. There's a lot in here. Maybe, Tim, instead of giving you a short verse next, we'll give you Romans 5, 12 through uh, 21. <laughs> this is densely packed, and I'm glad that there are scholars who have looked at it closely and helped us understand it line by line, but... In this message, I just want to be the storyteller who gets the big picture that um, Paul says we find ourselves in. The story begins this way in verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Our story, the big story, begins back in the Garden of Eden where Father Adam disobeyed God and brought destruction on us all. We are enmeshed in a tragedy that we didn't create and we don't fully understand. And if you transpose this story into systematic theology, you have the doctrine of original sin. A teaching that offends a lot of people. People don't get it. They find it offensive. Some think that original sin has to do with sex, as if the act that conceived us is sinful. That's nonsense. Some people think that the doctrine of original sin was invented by John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, which is nonsense. No, the doctrine just takes seriously the story that Paul tells 
and says, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's something fundamentally wrong with the world. There is something fundamentally flawed in us. And it's not a matter of political systems because sin is found in every system. It's not a matter of economics because poor and rich alike sin. And it's not a problem of education, getting the education system right. One guy thinking that a good education would help a thief paid for him to go to college and then graduate school. The result was where before the thief would steal items from boxcars, now he was smart enough to steal the whole railroad. G.K. Chesterton said that the doctrine of original sin is the easiest of all doctrines to verify empirically. All you have to do is read the news. All you have to do is look around you. All you have to do is look at children. Very early, children express anger and selfishness. The other day, a couple of our grandchildren, who will go unnamed, were over. One of them was playing with um, little matchbox cars and then left to go in another room and do something else. And another grandchild came and started playing with the cars. And the first grandchild came in and threw a hissy fit. Nobody taught them to do that. It comes naturally to all of us. Now, we may think that this is all unfair. We didn't choose to be born sinners. We didn't choose to be born. It just doesn't seem fair. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings where Frodo discovers that the ring of power that is in his possession is far more powerful and more dangerous than he dreamed. That, in fact, it threatens to destroy him and his friends and his countrymen and bring the whole world under the dark rule of Sauron. And um, as he's conversing with Gandalf the wizard about this, he, uh, he finds that the only way to destroy this thing is to go on a perilous quest right into the heart of the enemy's territory. And he says, how did this thing come to me? Why, why was I chosen? Gandalf wisely answers along these lines, no point fretting about how unfair this is. What are you going to do about it? And there isn't much point our fretting about the story we find ourselves in, which we didn't choose. What are we going to do about it? Deal with it. This is reality. Now, this is not a perfect illustration for a couple of reasons. For one thing, um, Frodo was innocent and we're not. Unlike him, we share guilt for the mess we're in. We're sons and daughters of Adam. Chips off the old block. In fact, in a sense, we are Adam. His name means man. And be honest, if it was you instead of him in the garden, would you have done any better? And for another thing, Frodo can do something about it. We really can't. We um, are powerless, as Romans 5 earlier in the chapter says. We can't fix our mess. We need the second Adam. 
The first great act of the story we find ourselves in was inaugurated by Adam. The second great act by Jesus Christ. And just as Adam's sin cast its shadow over the first great act, so Christ's righteousness colors act two. Just as the first Adam's sin affects everybody, the second Adam's righteousness affects everybody. As one brought death, the other brings life. But Paul doesn't say all this in verse 13. That's where this dash comes in. His thought breaks off. His mind is running faster than his pen or his tongue. He even loses control of his grammar in this text. Why? Because he anticipates a couple of misunderstandings, and instead of finishing his sentence, he addresses them. Well, I'm going to stick to the story's main line and then come back to what Paul says after this dash. He picks up the main thought in verse 18. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. As an aside, it's interesting that we may find it unfair when we are affected by somebody else's bad choices, but we don't think it's unfair when we are affected by somebody's good choices or circumstances. I mean, if you're born with plain looks or you go bald, you might complain about your genes. It's unfair, but nobody complains that it's unfair if you're born with a trim figure and good digestion or you suffer for bad decisions by your parent or your employer. You don't think it's unfair when you prosper because of the wisdom and prudence and hard work of your parents and your employers, the good that comes to you. If we find ourselves sensing that we don't deserve Adam's mess, we don't deserve the life that Christ brings either. <laughs> we suffer for Adam's sin, to be sure, but we benefit from Christ's one act of righteousness, is the way Paul puts it. It's possible that it's his whole life of obedience to God. It's more likely that it's the obedience he displayed when he died in our place on the cross. For, verse 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Act 1, Adam. Sin, condemnation, death. Act 2, Christ, righteousness, justification, life. This is the story that we find ourselves in. In the movie, Superman Returns, I, I realize I'm going back a ways. I don't know about anybody else. I just got tired of all the superhero movies. I haven't seen them for the last seven or eight years. I just had enough. So I go back to Superman Returns, where Lois Lane says to Clark Kent, or maybe he's uh, in 
his tights at this scene, I forget. The world doesn't need a savior, neither do I. But the viewers of the movie realize how ironic this is. The world does need a savior, and so does Lois. So do you and I. And in the second Adam, we have one. Now, I think we should forgive Paul for his twisted grammar here. Most of us, from time to time, get our tangs tangled. Uh, we leave sentences unfinished. We lose the thread of our story. Paul at least realizes that he has done so and comes back to it, and that's what he does here in verses 18 and 19. What got him off track? As he gets rolling with this story of these great acts, Adam story, the Jesus story, he anticipates a couple of misunderstandings. He can almost hear somebody saying, Paul, haven't you oversimplified things? You've told us that the story we find ourselves in is two acts, Adam and Jesus, but aren't you forgetting Moses? He was important, wasn't he? And Paul addresses this issue in verses 13 and 14. Before the law was given, that's Moses, that's the Moses story, sin was in the world. That's why Adam is even more important than Moses. He got us in this mess, and the law has a role. We're going to get to that in a minute. But Paul says, sin isn't charged to people's account when there's no law. Before the law was given, and afterward, after the law, for Gentiles who don't have the law, sin and death are still part of the human condition. Whether you have the law or you don't have the law, sin and death. That's the story we find ourselves in. We might not break the Ten Commandments, because we don't have the Ten Commandments, but we still are sinners the coming of the law did advance the plot in this sense. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. What's he mean by that? Well, before the law was given, people from Adam to Moses were still sinners, but after the law was given, they were idolaters, Sabbath breakers, murderers, extortioners, disobedient to parents, greedy, lazy, negligent, gluttons, drunkards, liars, adulterers. You see, sin increased. It was a code now, and there were a lot of violations of that code, a lot of trespasses. But, ah, I didn't read all of verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased grace increased all the more. Which leads to the second misunderstanding that Paul anticipates. The two acts of this great story we find ourselves in are parallel, but they're different. There's a how much more quality to act to. Jesus is not exactly like Adam. What he did is not exactly equivalent to Adam. Verse 15, the gift, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, is not like the trespass. You know, Paul has said in the finished sentence, the 
the grand storyline, it is like it in a sense. The trespass of Adam affected us all. The gift of Christ affects us all. But there's a way in which the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You see, death is a consequence of one sin, and that's understandable. The gift of eternal life, giving life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, this is miraculous. This is amazing grace we have sung, that you would lay down your life, that I might be set free. Verse 16, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That makes sense. But the gift followed the disobedience of Adam, the drunkenness of Noah, Cain's murder, Moses' own temper, Aaron's idolatry, David's adultery, your sin and mine. The gift followed sin after sin after sin, generation after generation after generation all over the world, a host of sin. And so somebody has written that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilts of the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. Last week we sang, and can it be, Verse 17 says that the reign of death is explicable. Adam sinned. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And so all of us who have followed in Father Adam's footsteps die. It's understandable. But that those who are spiritually dead, enslaved by sin, should ever become kings reigning in life. Can it be? Verse 20 again, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've heard that before in chapter 5. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have access to grace. Verse 9, we're saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, we're saved through his life. Verse 11, through him we've received reconciliation. Verse 17, in this text, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 19 here at the end of the chapter, Righteousness, eternal life, through Jesus Christ. And can it be? <laughs> My daughter and I years ago went down to Chicago to see the smash Broadway hit, Wicked. Every performance for months was sold out. But... 
the theater, the box office held a daily drawing for a few seats for a fraction of the normal ticket price. It seemed a long shot, but we took the train down to Chicago, scribbled our names on little slips of paper that went in a big witch's hat, and waited. By the time of the drawing, more than 120 people crowded the lobby, all hoping to be among the lucky winners, and Rebecca's name was the fourth one called. As we were ushered past ropes to get our vouchers, I couldn't believe my good fortune. I said to somebody else standing in line, I've never won anything before. And uh, the truth was, I still hadn't won anything. <laughs> My daughter had. It was her name that was drawn. It was her photo ID that got us past the ropes. It was her tickets that we showed the usher a couple hours later as he escorted us to the front row center seats for the hottest show in town. I only got in because I was with her. Similarly, every blessing and privilege I have from God is mine only because I'm united to Jesus. God elects, adopts, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies me because I'm with Him. I get into the kingdom. Someday, now even, only because I belong to Jesus. He is my ticket to forgiveness, joy, and a future that tops anything Broadway has to offer. Let's pray about Romans 5. Father, thank you so much for this great truth, for this story that we find ourselves in, that you graciously graciously sent your son to undo the mess that Adam got us in. We love him. We love you for sending him. And as I prayed other times when working our way through Romans, I realized that there's different kinds of people in the congregation or those listening in online. Some of us have embraced this story and believed the good news already and we're just moved once again today to gratitude and worship. But there are some perhaps who have not yet accepted the free offer of pardon that you give us in the person of your son, have not yet trusted him and pledged their lives to obeying him. And we pray that your spirit would do what the words of a preacher cannot do and awaken faith in hearts that some might reach out and accept the free gift that the second Adam offers to all of us unworthy sinners. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray and let all his people say, Amen.